really starting to wind down on this one, aren't we? There were some issues with sequencing here. They moved the Ducat story too far forward, and they rearranged the wedding story because the wedding story replaced the house story, which was actually supposed to be what the prophets were demanding of Cisco. So, they kind of had to rejigger things a bit. I feel bad for them, really. Typically, this kind of story is planned out substantially in advance, whereas in this case, they basically planned it out uh, as they were actually doing it. Th these four episodes, the previous one, this one, and the next two, were actually all being written at the same time. Which is actually a good policy, but it usually works better if you planned, if you planned this out a little bit more in advance, because they were just kind of making it up as they go. Still, for all that I can make fun, I actually think they did a pretty good job on this one, so props on that. So, Kai Win, Kai Adami Win, or Win Adami, excuse me, whatever, frickin' Win. She doesn't deserve to have a name. She is still politicking as usual, trying to finagle herself to be the one person to officiate the wedding between the emissary and, well, it doesn't matter at that point. I mean, think of the prestige. Her name will go down in history as the Kai who was the one to marry, well, to marry off? To be the Bajoran who married off the Emissary. I mean, come on. And never mind the fact that that's going to massively boost her current prestige. You'll also notice she just jumps in and automatically presumes that she's going to take over the, the, the ceremony. And when she does so, she just kind of stomps all over. I'm going to inform him I'll be doing it instead of him. Don't you worry. Now, Cisco doesn't push back because Cisco's still worried about the vision. Dun, 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 which we'll get to in a minute. Oh, I guess we'll get to now? Nope, nope. First, so I'm going to be talking about this episode in a weird angle. As with most actual serialized stories, rather than being like this chunk of story and then this chunk of story, it's more like four or five threads all going continuously. I actually like this format a lot for viewing. It makes it a little harder for analyzing. I thought about chopping each thread up, but I want to go through with the flow because there's a deliberate pacing to it I wanted to comment on as well. But anyways, so she leaves and she has a vision. Thump, thump. Thump, thump. Clearly, these are the prophets who are speaking to me. Actually, the prophets never speak to her. Which makes more and more sense the further we get into the show, doesn't it? Evil grin. Yeah, no, so... This is the problem when you reach out to a uh, spiritual or energy-based entity for visions. Because any spiritual-based or, or energy entity can give you visions. Not just the one you're looking for. If you think this isn't a problem, go look at Warcraft. I know that's a strange comparison to make, but... Well... There's spirits in the Warcraft setting, right? Spirit energy is a specific thing, but um, there's not just spirits. There's many, many, many different types of spiritual beings, including elemental beings and ancestral beings and undead beings and demonic beings and all sorts of stuff, right? Point being, there's actually a specific... There's several instances of this, but there's one moment that I'm actually rather amused by, and I pointed it out during the Wild Lore run, where Thrall reaches out to the spirits for guidance, and a spirit answers. It's just the spirit happens to be Ragnaros, the Fire Lord. Not quite who he was reaching out for. It, ironically, it did give him the info he was looking for, but, you know. And that's exactly what happens here. 
This is the problem when your spirit entities are a known variable, is that as long as you know that variable, you can control it to some extent. And that's exactly what the Paw Wraiths do. They send her this false vision in the manner of the prophets, although if you're paying attention, they are still doing it. Basically, they're being vague for vague sense. That's not actually what the prophets do. The prophets don't be vague. The prophets be... Prophets be weird, yo. No. The prophets are more not understanding. They're not vague because they're trying to be mysterious and above it all. They're vague because they don't really understand or cognate the way we do. So they relate things as they understand them. But what the Pawraiths do is they just straight up say stuff, but they say stuff in a very deliberate and specific way. Obviously, this is to, to lay the ground for Ducat's uh, deception. But my point being, they say things very clearly as if they have a very clear understanding of what they're saying. Now, we know that, and it helps us to distinguish that these are the Pawraiths. She's never had a vision with the prophets, and she never will. I'm going to go ahead and say this now, although this has occurred to me more than once before, and I'm pretty sure I've referenced this before. The prophets don't look at time the way we do. It's it's one of those really horrible circumstances where it's it's kind of a self-paradox, really. They never reach out to her, so she betrays them, which is why they never reach out to her. Because they knew she would betray them, because they never reached out to her, because she was going to betray them, because I could keep going for a while. You get the idea. It's a wonderful little circle, and it's kind of messed up when you think about it. It is ultimately the fault of the prophets, though. I think Sito was right. Anyway, so, <clears throat> moving on. This then leads to the Breen being built up more. And wait, does this mean Dr. Bashir is a Breen? No! Ezri, of course, analyzes her own dream and does so... Well... I don't want to get into real-life dream analysis, which has actually moved forward substantially since the 90s, but she hits things a little bit too on the nose, basically to lead up to what's coming up ahead. But they do do several things to try and talk up the brain. No one has ever seen what they look like, even though Dukat and Kira have. No one has ever defeated them, even though they've been defeated in battle before. They're super amazing and awesome. And obviously that's just two prisoners talking in a cell who are currently imprisoned by the brain. But I'm pretty sure what the creators are doing is trying to talk up the brain as much as possible before the big reveal. Talk about that in a minute. This cuts to Damar drinking. What I love about this, and huge credit to Casey Biggs, at first glance, if you aren't really paying attention, it looks like he's just enjoying the life of luxury. He's on top of things. I am the dictator of Cardassia. I get women. I get drink. What more do I want? But then he gets up, looks in the mirror, and you just see his face, and there's just revulsion there. And then he takes a swig of the, of the alcohol. Mind you, he just woke up. And he, it's not like he's like, oh, it's so much better. Instead, he just, and he just like stomachs it, just bites it down. No. This is a man who is just barely enduring his lot in life. And he knows it. <laughs> As I've already talked about, it's really horrifically ironic that... Uh, in their time of need, they turned to someone who would only abuse them in a way that he himself was never in favor of, which has now been hoisted upon him. He never wanted this deal with the Dominion, and now he's got to deal with it. Have fun. So Dukat shows up. Uh, he gives a pep talk to Damar. 
That actually weirded me out a little bit. Why does he do that? I mean, Ducat's got charisma in spades. It's one of his only redeeming traits. But, sorry, I should be saying Pa Ducat, but you know what I mean. Um, I, could, I could say Bajoran Ducat at this point, or maybe Anjo. Angel, get it? But no, he's he talks up Damar. He tries to give him a pep talk and, you know, we need to have that man back. Cardassia needs you. Why? The Pawraiths intend to set the physical universe to fire, to burn everything. That's actually their goal. So there's only two possibilities here. Possibility one, Dukat doesn't know this, and so he's just ignorantly helping them destroy the galaxy. Or possibility number two, he does know this, which is just messed up. I mean, your pick on this. I, I've already long since washed my hands of the idea that this is Dukat in any sense of the word, so let's just move on here. <clears throat> so, I do wonder what he feels like, so casually and effortlessly striding onto the promenade. No, one's, no one comes to greet him, of course, he's not important, but at the same time, no one tries to stop him. He's just, hey. So this then puts Sisko into the horrible, horrible position. This is when we talk about that vision thing again. See, here's a problem. First of all, Sisko does have experience with the prophets, so he knows the prophet he's talking to is, in fact, the real deal. It's also just not, not just the prophets. They are not reaching out to him. She is reaching out to him, his mother, specifically. And as, as first of all, I want to say huge credit to Deborah, um, oh God, Lacey? can't read my own handwriting. The woman who plays his mother, she does an excellent job of basically playing a god that still cares, a very distant but affectionate thing. As Cisco points out, she was worried like a mother would be worried. This wasn't a threat. And what's interesting is the episode phrases this as if it's a crisis of faith or a, or a, a concept of faith, which I, I guess you could say it is, but I don't know. I don't see it that way. Here's a problem. In the practical reality of Star Trek, the prophets exist, and they are nonlinear energy beings. If a prophet says to you, you shouldn't do this, you should probably think about not doing that. <laughs> the only thing that really comes into question is their motives. But here's the catch, and I already pointed this out. This isn't the prophets, it's just her. And she doesn't say you can't, she says you shouldn't. I don't want you to do this because you will hurt. She can't walk the path you will walk. Now, with the advantage of hindsight and a little bit of analysis, we can tell fairly simply that what this is, is she's basically saying, this is not going to end well. <laughs> I mean, you can marry her all you want, it's not going to end well. And it's a warning. How do you ignore something from a demonstrable truth like that? And of course, that's why Cisco takes it so seriously, or at least I'd like to think so, but no, it's probably faith in his case. He's kind of begun to believe in the prophets, so whatever. <sighs> I'm sorry for saying it that way. I have a lot of bile for the prophets. 50 years, 53 years of occupation. What were they doing? Anyways, <clears throat> we'll get back to the occupation in a minute. Then we cut to the Breen. I'm going to talk about the Breen here really quick. They do more effort to try and make the Breen seem as unscrutable as possible. They speak in something completely non-language. <laughs> is, is like their language. To, to try and distance themselves from us. Can't see their faces, can't see their bodies. It's always cold and they've got weapons and they're torture and evil and horrible. Trying to build them up as a new threat as quickly and efficiently as possible. Which brings me to my point. This was a mistake. Now, in the interest of fairness, they do some good stuff with the Breen in this last nine-parter. But the problem is the Breen show up here, 
And then the Breen problem is solved, I think, within five episodes of now. So that's like, oh my god, the Breen, and we're good. We're cool. Just, eh, like that. The Breen would have worked a lot better if they'd built them up more over the seasons, if they had been a background thing this entire time, or if they were an existing power that has the advantage of already being built up. The the reveal at the end of this episode does work, and I'll talk about that in a second, but I've always felt like it's, oh, and here's the Breen! Like, just, okay, cool, no, no pun intended. I mean, I liked the Breen episode in STO, too. I still have that officer, actually, but anyways. So Ducat rolls very high on his charisma score. This is the value of having a bard in your party, by the way. But the problem is, in addition to him being very charismatic and knowing how to just manipulate the ever-living crap out of Win, the real problem is he already stacked the deck. He knows. It's actually really horrible. He knows that she spared... She, she was bribing people under his order in order to spare, you know, get some leniency for for Majorans. He knows that. He was the one in charge of the execution orders. So he can slide himself into that. By the way, that's cute, trying to tie that in there. He also can lie to her about what's going on back home, and he can say just the right things in order to indicate to her what she will react to, because he also happens to know the vision that she was given. It would, be, it would actually be more unlikely that she wouldn't fall into this, especially since she is so, let's put this bluntly, desperate to cling to her significance, especially in the wake of the fact that, as she revealed, never been visited. So she's finally visited with a vision. She clings to that like crazy. I can't even blame her, really. The horrible irony, and this kind of goes back into the tragic tragedy of this whole situation, is if the prophets had been reaching out to win all along, A, she might actually not be a horrible person, Remember, the very first time we ever saw her, she was planning an assassination to obtain political power in a religious order. She started evil. but So she might not have been such a horrible person, but B, if I might be so bold, she might actually know the difference between the prophets and the parates, as I illustrated earlier. I'm pretty sure if the parates reach out to Cisco, he would know within about a minute, maybe, so, Cisco reaches out to Kira, the believer, and she's just like, no, you did the right thing. Blind faith. I've talked about that before, the two types of faith, and Kira definitely has blind faith when it comes to the prophets, which then, of course, leads to the changeling, the female changeling, who is getting worse and worse and worse. And then Worf is coming in, and he's barely recovering from the interrogation. By the way, can I just say, as horrible as this sounds, they're finally interrogating people by actually just scanning their brain directly. Like, there's no need for this torture horribleness. Just, there we go. Okay, we've got all the info. We're cool. <laughs> we have the tech, at least in Star Trek. And then they carry Ezri off to be horribly tortured, because that's, that's always fun. And um, this is where I want to talk about the pace of the episode. The episode is like surfing... It, it's actually... I've talked about this before. It's like surfing the waves. Crest, and then dip, and crest, and then dip, and then crest, and then dip. And the pacing and the the ter, the, the terminus of it is, is fascinating because every time they, they escalate, it's like, okay, 
you know, I, I don't know if I should do this. The changeling's getting worse. Worf is getting worse. Oh, God, terrorization. And then it gets back to calm. It increases overall tension and tone and then jumps right back to calm and then increases and then jumps back. It's a fascinating uh, approach to it. So Dukat needles when he's, he's not Bajoran. Does he even really understand us? Uh, no, I mustn't question, but I mean, he didn't even go through the, the occupation. How can you heal what you cannot comprehend? Which is something that sounds like it makes sense, but is actually total nonsense. If you had to personally understand uh, what someone has gone through in order to help them through it, uh, life would be substantially worse. Now, there's this thing called empathy and sympathy, which are two separate things, and I forget which is which, so please forgive me, but one of them is you care about someone else because they're going through something, not because you understand what they're going through. You just want to, you know, help them because you care about them. Now, don't mistake me. There's a value in actually understanding the problem, so to speak. Uh, just ask any PTSD survivors. However, by the same exact thing, even a PTSD person can be helped by someone who does not suffer from it. All they have to do is care. Anyways, <clears throat> going back to that story, you know, the, the guards she bribed, I find myself wondering if that was the total benefit, the total contribution of Kai Wynn to the resistance during the occupation, was bribing soldiers to whip them slightly less, metaphorically speaking. Just interesting to think about. Court comes in. The romantic, of course. Cork is a very romantic person, I'm sorry. We've seen this a few dozen times at this point, which is yet another reason why Profit and Lace pisses me off. Shame to waste something so beautiful. Yeah, yeah I'd agree. And then uh, Ezri wants Bashir? Well, that came out of frickin' nowhere. Especially since they suddenly decided to shove Worf and Ezri together in the last episode. But no, he, she's actually interested in Bashir. What? Um, okay, so, here's my final thoughts here, because this is we're, we're bullet, bullet, bullet towing, towing, towing? <sighs> Bulleting towards the end here. Why do I give a damn who Ezri is romantically connected to? I mean, I give a damn about the Cassidy-Sisko relationship, because that's been built up in a part of their character for literally years. They also have good dynamic together, and they've already had their ups and downs. This is this. That's not something that comes all of a sudden. Oh, by the way, I, no, I love Worf. No, I love Bashir. And I found myself thinking that it was like a soap opera. I want to share a theory with you, a lore theory. I think that uh, as a cost. As a, this is pure speculation, by the way. I have nothing to prove this. No interviews, no behind-the-scenes material. Nothing to prove it other than the facts in the episodes as presented. Okay? I have a feeling that Berman and the executive staff, the actual producers, you know, I say that's the wrong word. The actual executives, the ones in charge at Paramount, and, and uh, the ones actually dictating how the show went, I have a feeling that, as a whole, they basically insisted that the show, Deep Space Nine, as an aggregate, be written in a different style to accommodate the fact that it was more serialized than, you know, Trek generally was. Remember, they were so anti-serialization over on Voyager that episodes would contradict and contrast 
directly, as in like this episode would happen and then this episode would happen right next to each other and they do not exist in the same reality because there's no continuity whatsoever between the two. There's actually the opposite. There's an incongruence between the two. But over on Deep Space Nine, as much as I made fun back in, what was it, season four or whatever, the fact of the matter is they were dipping their toes into having you know a great deal more emphasis on continuity throughout the course of the show. So I think the cost of that, the price of that, was that they write it more like a soap opera. I've mentioned before to a few people in television the idea of this kind of serialized storytelling. And back in the day, and this always weirded me out, back in the day people were like, oh, you mean like a soap opera? And I'd always look at them weird like, what do you mean? But they would explain, because most soap operas, at least back in the day, about two decades ago at this point, were designed to be string continuity. You know, clearly serialized storytelling. Events leading into events leading into events. They wanted people to keep coming back to find out what happened next, right? Now, one of the hallmarks of that is the relationship thing. Who's going to end up with whom? This has, of course, been parodied ruthlessly over the years. But the fact remains that, even parody or no, soap operas are very big on who is ending up with whom romantically. Now, one of the things that has really weirded me out, going back through DS9's ruminations, you know, actually going through an analysis moding every episode, is that they just keep having relationships. I think there's actually more romantic connections for the characters than in any other Star Trek. No, really. How many people has Kira ended up with at this point before finally setting, settling on Odo? Just to name one example of this. And the way they're treating the whole, oh, yes, I'm finally truly in love with... Uh, I, I mean, just picture this. Remove yourself from Star Trek for a second. <clears throat> Next time on The Days of Our Lives, she died, but her surviving clone has fallen in love with him. But it turns out, while he tries to struggle with his feelings for her, she secretly harbors heart for the good doctor. Like, I, I, I'm not even exaggerating that, and it just sort of fits in a weirdly neat way. I do wonder if that's why they pushed that element so hard in DS9. I don't know. I'm, I'm just speculating at this point. Either way, contrast, they show the uh, the wedding and there's the final scene with, you know, with Sarah, with, with the prophet mother. And she even flat out calls him my son, which is unique for the prophets to do that in general. And you could tell there's a degree of care. It's a good scene. It's a good scene. And what's funny is the scene is shot in a way that is beautiful because... It, <clears throat> I don't know what it's called. It's a type of scene where everything seems happy and nice, but it's actually foreboding. Like, ha, ah, this is so... what? Like, imagine everyone's celebrating the ignition of a new reactor. And you, the audience, knows, either from future knowledge or whatever, that, that this, the moment they hit that button, it's not going to provide free, clean energy for everyone. It's just going to blow up the planet. So imagine you're watching now, knowing that, you're watching the celebration scene as they're like, yeah, woo, we can't hit, wait to hit the button. It's going to be wonderful. Five, four, three. And it's basically a horror scene. But it's got that unique tone to it, that flavor to it, because the people in universe don't know it. This goes back to the whole Hitchcock thing. We know they don't. The wedding is presented in that manner. But in this case, it's not quite the same, because they know too. Cisco knows. Kira knows. We know. 
Then they immediately contrast that with the far more overt gloom. Ezri and Worf are now prisoners of the Dominion as part of a Dominion-Breen alliance. Dum, dum, dum. And again, while the Breen thing doesn't quite work for me, I will give this moment credence because this right here, that moment, that scene, that's the power of serialized storytelling. Oh my gosh, the Breen have joined the Dominion. Crap. Like, you can't get that kind of impact, especially at the end of an episode, from a non-serialized storytelling perspective. Final note, really quick. I know Wei-Yoon is amazing, even though he's a little-known character nobody cares about. But Wei-Yoon is an amazing person. Well, Jeffrey Combs is an amazing person, but Wei-Yoon is a terrible person. But my point is, Jeffrey Combs does a wonderful job. Uh, he has this line where he says, it changes everything, doesn't it? I can't even say it like he does it, because he says it's so smugly. Just so smugly. What's doubly funny, though, is he's saying that, and he's basically rubbing it into Worf and to Esri. But it also applies when he says it to us. We'll see how much worse things can get next time.